0: Welcome to the 407th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome public health and science journalist Tara Haley back to COVID Calls. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Today is a special COVID Calls episode at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can always just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch, or you can watch on Twitter live by following at U.S. of Disaster. You can hear COVID Calls anytime, recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, February 2nd, 2022, the full vaccination rate for COVID-19, that is two doses received for COVID-19 vaccine in Algeria is 13.5%. In Libya, it's 14.7%. And in Egypt, the full vaccination rate for COVID is 27.1%. These statistics are according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Hillsborough student who died of COVID and pneumonia loved the New Jersey devils. This was written by Suzanne Russell and published in mycentraljersey.com, January 14th, 2022, Dateline, Hillsborough, New Jersey. Hillsborough High School student, Justin Daniel Clark, is being remembered for his passion for ice hockey, particularly the New Jersey Devils, and his love for rescuing animals, a trait he shared with his late grandfather, Justin, who had just celebrated his 17th birthday on December 29th, 2021, Died from what family and friends said was COVID-19 and pneumonia complications. Justin was an amazing young man who was very well loved by many. He was an amazing big brother to his two younger brothers, Aiden and Ryder, who will miss him dearly. This was written on a GoFundMe.com page called Help Nicole with her son's funeral set up. Uh, and this was created by Lisa Ferraro of South Plainfield, New Jersey. Ferraro said she created the page on behalf of Justin's heartbroken parents, Nicole Lopez Meeks and James Clark. Justin, a high school junior, loved ice hockey and the New Jersey Devils, and he wore their jacket proudly. He also enjoyed playing video games with friends online, according to the GoFundMe page. When you needed him; he would be there for you no matter the situation. He often commented on his selfless sense of compassion and kindness. He had a contagious laugh and a smile that could light up any room. He had an infectious and charismatic personality. The captivating charm of his manners and conversation is attested by all who knew him. He cared about his family and friends in the most genuine way. He was willing, always willing, to lend a helping hand by offering a listening ear, smile, or words of encouragement. He was a tech-savvy genius with an old loving soul, his obituary states. Justin was an avid sports enthusiast who enjoyed riding four-wheel vehicles with his uncles and grandfather playing basketball, roller hockey, and street hockey, and watching sports, especially the New Jersey Devils. Especially enjoyed spending time with his grandparents and loved his grandmother's cooking, according to his obituary. The unexpected death of a child is an unimaginable loss that no one could prepare for, wrote Angelica Romano of Hillsborough on another fundraising page called Tragic Loss of a Child, Support for Justin Clark. Romano said the love and joy that Justin brought to his family and everyone that knew him will never be forgotten. Justin had a big heart and his personality and smile was compelling beyond words. His never ending knowledge, love and conversations about sports and music, especially the New Jersey Devils has always been a passion of his. The family is devastated and truly heartbroken. The story was Hillsborough student who died of COVID and pneumonia. Love the New Jersey Devils. It was the obituary of Justin Daniel Clark, who died in January of 2022, COVID-19 and pneumonia. Okay. It's a pleasure to bring Tara Haley back to COVID calls. Let me introduce her to you. Tara Haley is a freelance science journalist and photojournalist who serves as the AHCJ core topic leader for medical studies. She particularly specializes in reporting on vaccines, pediatrics, maternal health, obesity, nutrition, mental health, and medical research in general. And she regularly speaks on vaccine hesitancy. Her work has appeared in Elemental, Scientific American, New York Times, Forbes, Politico, Slate, Nova, Wired, and Science, and she writes and covers medical conferences regularly for Medscape and MD Edge, and she's been a guest a few times before on COVID Calls, and it's a pleasure to bring her back. Tara Haley, how are you doing? Welcome back to COVID Calls.
1: Hi, I'm doing all right, gearing up for the winter storm that's about to hit.
0: Where are you calling from?
1: I am in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, And we're mainly just hoping that we don't have a repeat of last year uh, where the whole state shuts down and we don't have access to uh, energy. So hopefully that'll hopefully we're ready, though. We have a generator and extra water and, uh, you know, all of our supplies.
0: (laughs) Refresh my memory and those who may not uh, a year ago seems maybe in COVID time about a century ago. What happened last year with the ice storm in Texas?
1: Yes yeah, we got hit with a storm uh, Valentine's Day weekend last February, and it shut down the whole state. We had uh, record low temperatures. and the and we, we had extremely high demand for energy uh, for heating homes and whatnot. The problem is that the uh, the distribution centers were not properly winterized. So even though we had the supply to to meet the demand, it could the supply couldn't get out to people it couldn't be delivered and so we had massive blackouts throughout the entire state uh the only place that was spared was el paso because they're on the western u.s grid texas has its own grid except for that little you know area on the far uh far west um and what that meant was a lot of deaths i don't actually know how many deaths i'd have to look it up um wouldn't surprise me if it's well over thousand or in the thousands um I don't know that it is. I, I would have to look it up, but, um, but it was, it was basically a week where a lot of people didn't even have electricity. Uh, this was the, some people might remember the famous uh, little, you know, controversy with Ted Cruz because Ted Cruz flew to uh, this, the Senator Ted Cruz flew to Cancun during this time. And um, a, a former, uh, a, you know, uh Beto, who uh, ran against Ted Cruz in the previous senator race, I believe, or was it against Cornyn? Gosh, I'm, I'm saying these things and I have to double check them. So don't quote me on this. But he, you know, he'd, he'd run for governor as well. Um, he was coordinating a, uh, like a phone bank call to check on uh, people, older adults, for example, that lived alone and make mm-hmm. sure they were okay and they had access to heat. And It was just, it was a mess. I mean, it was, it was, you no. Know, uh, lots of snow, but the snow wasn't the issue. It was mainly the below the freezing temperatures. And I even, <laughs> I even wrote a story for Texas Monthly about bats that that um, uh, were killed during that time because a lot of the bats had returned early from Mexico as the weather had gotten warmer and warmer. And um, so, you know, several hundred thousand bats died. A lot of people don't realize that the largest bat colonies in the United States are in Texas.
0: Mm-hmm. One of the things I remember about the most kind of my of family. Yeah, no, no, I'm glad you. Yeah, I mean, I, I went to school in Austin, and people used to line up dutifully to watch the bats come out in the evening and go to their their evening hunting yep. grounds in the central part of the state. Um, one of the things, since we're talking here for a second about this convergence of disasters, you know, so we every every part of the United States and around the world has its um, types of. Uh, exposures, whatever they may be, a hurricane or, or earthquake or winter storms or drought or whatever it is. And then you layer COVID on top of that. So you have this convergence, um, with too much demand on emergency management, too much demand on the supply chain. Um, and in this case, on the electric, on the electric grid. But one thing that struck me of the conversation then, um, was people talked about how long it was lasting. The power is out for so long and, and I was, I remember, and of course that's true, but I remember also thinking like, this this pandemic is going on an awfully long time too. Like there was this disconnect that people had yeah. and it, it kind of, a, I don't want to say everyone in Texas, because not everybody in Texas I is the it, same, but it's interesting to me.
1: But there's, there's one really big distinction between them, which is, um, it, it's the experience of it. When you... With the cold, you felt it quite literally and you couldn't see things and you couldn't because the the electricity was out, right? It was acute. It It was, you know, you were experiencing the direct effects right then and there. The problem with COVID is it's an invisible, I mean, invisible to our naked eye, at least virus floating around, you know, in the air on surfaces. And it's, you know, you all, the only impact that you see is the existence of people wearing masks. And then there's, of course, the polarization that occurs about masks Or if you personally have someone that you you know that that is uh, that has COVID and is having a severe case of it, right, as opposed to one of the milder cases where it's more similar to like cold or, um, you know, like a bad respiratory infection. Um, So I think that's a big part of it. Is when we were spending one solid week in those sub zero temperatures without you know good reliable electricity, you couldn't escape it. Whereas with the pandemic, it's not right in front of you all the time. It's like this gradually unfolding disaster. Excuse me. um, It's just always present. So, Excuse me. It's always there. And, uh, you know, people can't see it and feel it and hear it. Uh, You know, we don't have any five, those five senses. We don't have a way to experience it in a sensory way. And I think that's the out of sight, out of mind problem.
0: I think that's really important. And, you know, from the early days of the pandemic, when particularly in urban areas where people were hearing sirens, when there was a sort of sense of alarm, um, there was that uh, mm-hmm. sort of sense sensorial aspect to it in which people couldn't avoid the pandemic. But so much of the pandemic then and now, it happens in emergency departments, it happens in ICUs, it happens, as you say, out of sight, I'm just reflecting on that, because it does speak to the sort of psychology of disaster Um, In interesting ways, I think, in what we perceive as risky or not risky. I wonder, you know, just stay with this for one more second, if we could, the political fallout in Texas from the mismanagement of the ice storm a year ago. uh, Was there any at all? I mean, I would like to see some some accountability for the mismanagement of the pandemic in Texas, but I think I've given up on that.
1: You and me both. Um, No, there was not. There has not been. I mean, the real test will be when Abbott runs for reelection. But I don't really have any doubt that he's going to get reelected. He has given some lip service to the problems with the grid. But the most recent thing that he's proposed is bringing in crypto miners. Um, And his plan is to bring in a bunch of crypto miners, which will then increase energy demand for those who aren't familiar with how mining works uh it it, crypto mining requires immense amounts of energy uh it's actually considered a problem that contributes to to, uh global warming and the the pandemic excuse me and uh (laughs) pandemic (laughs) what do you call it Uh, carbon emissions um and so it's not good for the environment and his idea is you bring in these crypto miners and they increase the energy demand and then somebody else will come in and build another energy plant because i guess if you build it they will come I don't know. That's, that's what his plan is. And then um, with this higher use of energy and another plant, you know, delivering that energy when, if and when another winter storm comes or another demand comes, the government just says, okay, crypto miners, you can stop mining for a while and the rest of the state can use it. And yeah, that's his plan. And keep in mind that crypto miners are kind of libertarian by nature. Um, and libertarian by nature means not doing what the government said by nature. Right. <laughs> and, um, allegedly they would have contracts, but I don't know how you enforce something like that. So I don't know that a contract would make too much difference. And again, the problem wasn't supply. We had enough supply to meet the demand. What we didn't have was a way to deliver that supply to the people who needed it. So, you know, because it wasn't winterized and the legislature had, you know, required companies to winterize their uh, their facilities back when this happened last time. This was not the first time this had happened in Texas, but there's no enforcement mechanism. And if the executive branch doesn't enforce it, I mean, they, they're they not going to spend money to do it without being forced to. I mean Texas is famous for not having a lot of regulation. It's very, quote unquote, business friendly. So no, there really has not been any accountability whatsoever. The worst that happened was that Ted Cruz got made fun of for going to Cancun, um, which is just pathetic, but...
0: Just want to remind folks uh, real quickly that I'm talking to Tara Haley today on COVID calls, and so okay, I hope I hope the winter storm is mild, uh, leaves you alone, um, and uh, let's talk about some of the other things that are on your mind that you've been writing about. I want to talk about the school situation first. I, I follow you on Twitter uh, religiously. I know you're you're really <laughs> in the fight on that, writing about it, social media activity <laughs> about that. Um, First of all, just give me the landscape, I mean, where you are, what's happening in terms of COVID protection in schools, if anything, and then let's talk bigger picture.
1: Okay. So in Texas, when we went back to school in August, um, the Texas Education Agency was not allowing schools to be reimbursed for students who were being taught virtually. So it was required, for all intents and purposes, using funding as the, the, the enforcement mechanism, schools were required to have in-person school. Uh, which didn't provide any options for students who were immune compromised or had immune compromised family members or had another reason that, you know, I, I, defi- I definitely believe that in the big picture, in-person school is, you know, it tend tends to be the best for the vast majority of, of students, but there was no option for the students that didn't fit into that. Um, the other issue that they did was uh, the governor did not allow schools to require masks because freedom um, and that went to the court that had happened in a couple of states happened in Florida as well. Um, several parents took that to court, especially for IDEA, which is the disability law that prom- that guarantees, a, an education to all children have disabilities. And of course, if your child has a disability, that puts them at a greater, um, at a, I'm sorry, let me turn off my, do not disturb on, there we go on my phone, um, And if we did not have, uh, you know, if if students with disabilities that have, you know, conditions that make them more prone to severe disease at higher risk, then we're, you know, you're not providing them a safe learning environment. And those were somewhat successful. Essentially, what it came down to was the attorney general said, you know what, we can't enforce this. Oh, well, the problem is that didn't happen until a month and a half after school started. So, you know, horses, barns, genies, bottles. you know, uh, most of the schools, there were a couple of school districts that had already defied the governor and required masks anyway. Uh, a couple of uh, San Antonio schools, Houston schools, Dallas schools, so some of the big cities. You certainly were not seeing that in rural areas. And we're in a suburban area where they, our district, you know, strongly encouraged masks, which, uh, you know, take that for whatever you want to take it as. So we actually pulled our children out of school because my husband is immune compromised, and we couldn't risk having one of them bring it home before pediatric vaccines were available. At the point now, um, my son, my older son is in an online school that it was an online school. it was an, that was him calling out. It, he's in an online school that was online before the pandemic. like it, it was always a virtual school predating the pandemic. but it's part of uh, the Colleyville, school district, um, so it's, it's part of an IS uh, in Texas, what's called an independent school district, an ISD, so it's part of a public school district, and what was interesting is um, during that week of January 20th, on that Thursday and Friday, they did not have, all the schools were closed, not because there were too many, not because of infections in terms of like, oh, we don't want to risk kids having infections, there were too many sick teachers, they didn't have enough adults who could physically be present in the building in order to have school at too many campuses. And to me, that exemplifies the issue. So much of the COVID discussion with schools has been binary. Either schools, you know, kids have to be in person or they have to be home. And there's been no discussion about the relative merits of virtual school and how some virtual schools can be run very well. I was speaking with my son earlier today about the way that, you know, the the way his virtual school runs now versus last year with the school district. And he preferred the school district. It went really well. Um, uh, he would rather be in in-person school right now, and I'm hoping we can w- find a way to make that work. But, you know, when the schools have so much COVID that the teachers can't even come to work, that's a problem. <laughs> and, um, you know, people say, oh, well, it was mild. Okay, yeah, it's mild in people who were, you know, have healthy immune systems, two doses of the vaccine, and then got a booster. Um, the kids aren't eligible for boosters yet, for one thing. and even though the kids themselves might for the most part have fairly mild experiences um, broadly speaking, not not all across the board, the you know, they're vectors. they bring it home. And my husband's immune compromised. He has been vaccinated four times actually now because mm-hmm. he was just he had the third shot for the immune compromise, then he got the booster after you know six months later. But we don't know how well he would protect against COVID with a breakthrough infection. And we know that Omicron was very good at immune evasion, you know, getting past the defenses of the immune system. We couldn't, you know, do I want my kids to accidentally put their dad in the hospital and have to live with that? So um, my frustration has been the unwillingness to look at solutions that are multifaceted and work in different places. You know, allowing some kids, maybe the district sets up one dedicated type of class for kids throughout the whole district who do virtual, right? That would have been an option. Um, not having mask requirements right now is just insane. And what I'm seeing, I, there was actually an article about this in the AP today. I got literally five minutes before I came, brought my computer into my office to uh, to call you. Um, I was reading an article in, um, in the Associated Press called, let's see if, if it comes up again. It was um, with COVID staffing crunch, who's teaching the, who will teach the, t- who, who's going to teach the kids? And it opens with the fact, you know, <laughs> I'll read you this one. It says, um, uh, let's see here uh, where it says, let's see, they were allowing, you know, there were police officers teaching parents. It was, It was like get a warm body in the classroom kind of thing. And I'm trying to see here it is. The answer around the U.S. could be a local police officer, National Guard soldier, state budget analyst, parent or recent high school graduate nearly anyone willing to help keep school doors open throughout the omicron sta- uh, driven staffing crunch i used to teach high school and any teacher will tell you that for every one day you're out and have a sub it takes two days to catch back up mm. okay that's just a standard teaching thing um and you know it, you just deal with it imagine that on a massive scale just sticking a warm body and, and that's assuming a sub that's a qualified sub Right, not the cop. You just pulled um, the last person. I would. I, I taught at a Title One school that was predominantly Black and Hispanic, and I am very familiar with the systemic racism that exists in you know throughout not only our society but our police forces. Forces. The last person I would want to pull into my classroom to cover my class back when I was teaching would be a police officer. That would be a disaster. Um. So you know, I just I I don't understand this obsession with keep kids in school at all costs, no matter what. And I'm not saying we should shut down the schools either. That's the problem is the moment I say that, people turn around and say, oh, well, you want to shut down all the schools. No, actually, I think, you know, we want to do what we can to keep the schools open. But when you have, you know, a a surge of an illness, you know, a disease and a pandemic that's literally three times greater than the peak we had with Delta, especially when it's going to be over fast. Would it be a horrible thing to take two weeks off and and you know doesn't child care issues, but what you do is you make you have in-person school for the ones who have no other choice, right? The, you know the kids who are who have parents that are um, first responders, for example, right? Mm-hmm. If you dramatically reduce it so that you can have masks and you can have social distancing in the schools, and then you do virtual for everyone else for just those two weeks, right? And you find a way to compensate the parents for that through the government. That's what we ought to be doing, but we're not. And so, what we end up with is, on, you know, rolling exposures where where parents are checking their email every day to see is the school even going to be open today. You can't plan for that. You can plan for oh, the kids are going to be off school for two weeks, um, and and the downstream effects of that. You would hear people say, oh, well, you know, the parents have to work; they can't have their kids at home. Guess what? The parents aren't working because the kids are bringing it home, and then the parents have to isolate at home. So, I mean, you know, I was reading on Twitter. Healthcare workers, doctors and nurses weren't able to go to the hospital because their kids brought Omicron home from school, gave it to them, and then they were out. So, so it's, you know, when you, right. when you just let this sort of free for all happen, it, it, oh, it's been maddening. It's,
0: well, it's, it's,
1: it's it, logical. I mean, it's like you can plan for this. There are, there are ways to deal with this that are not so disruptive and which still have the focus of keeping kids in in in-person school as much as possible. But when you get fanatical about it and you say, no, they, you know, they, (laughs) they physically must show up in the building, no matter what, we don't care if you have like a groundhog in charge of them. Like, I mean, it, you know, it, it just got ridiculous. And that's what I've seen. And, and I will also say that, you know, to do, you know, there are individuals who are saying kids need to be at home during this time, no matter what. There shouldn't be any risk at all. That's not a good solution either. I'm not, you know, the, the, the stay home no matter what people are also not helpful. So you've got these extremes out there and then all the parents in the middle trying to make sense of it all. And parents are, I, I, I mean, the only people who are having a rougher time than parents right now are healthcare workers, right? The ones who are just completely burned out. Nobody can be as burned out as the healthcare workers and including mental health workers, right? But after that, it's parents.
0: <laughs> there's, I mean, two key well, parts.
1: Parents and teachers, actually. Yeah, I, I should, well,
0: and they're part of the same. You know, I almost ecosystem. think of teachers
1: of, as part of the, I, I think of teachers as, as that first responder I, group, to be honest.
0: Yeah, I do too. And 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 having um, family who are in education and a, a sister or brother-in-law who are teachers in Texas, this all resonates. My sister, uh, oh,
1: perfect example. In January, when school started back, right? My sister shows up on Monday there's a staff meeting that morning. Tuesday is when the students come back. Wednesday, she had a sore throat. Thursday, she had a positive COVID test. Boom. I mean, that's how, you know, right. and it, it could have been, you know, that, that doesn't affect her. The downstream effects of that are are not educationally beneficial. Let's just put it that way. Not, not oh. to mention mentally, you know, mental health and social and all these other issues.
0: One part of that that's really um, bothered me, I want to get your feedback on this. I talked with the epidemiologist Justin Feldman last week, and he he put it in very stark terms. He said, basically, when the government stopped providing financial assistance that allowed people to make decisions about whether or not they could stay home from work, then we moved the whole pandemic, and this is Republicans and Democrats, moved the whole pandemic into another phase, which was really about the economy first. And and I, I, I sort of knew that, but he just said it in like a sentence, and I was like, yeah, right. And, and that to me is the way to understand this schools issue. Absolutely. You've shown the fallacy of it. You know, the idea that, well, it doesn't matter who's in front of the classroom. The kids need to be there because that allows the household to continue to earn. Yes. Um, and I'm not saying that's not important. Um, but there's other ways to manage that than to just assume that the schools need to be daycare facilities basically to allow two earner households. And there's huge problems with that, but two to highlight. Um, one is that, um, if your philosophy is the kids need to be in school cause it's good for the kids. Well, that doesn't work if the teachers are out or if you're having exactly. you know, constant disruption and substitute. I mean, if it's about socialization, it you're constantly
1: arguments for being as hollow as they were in the first place.
0: Right. So there's that piece, but then there's the other piece which you point to is really important. And it's a failure, I think of just basic epidemiological understanding people say, well, it's not so bad for the kids. I mean, first of all, I have problems with that statement too, because Uh, the pediatric evidence doesn't bear that out, I don't think. I think COVID is dangerous for kids, but kids are also then spreading it. So it's not like kids come home and then have their own house.
1: That that was a big misconception in the beginning. There was this big idea in the beginning uh, that kids are not spreading it, which anybody, I mean, it was bullshit i mean (laughs) we didn't have the data to say it was bullshit initially we finally got the data but in the meantime you know it it was just a bizarre i don't even know how it came to be and the other thing that frustrated me about all that what he was saying about the economy another way to think about that and this has been something that I, i was talking to a friend about this just the other day she was frustrated that her she had a friend who was had had covid She was still testing. It had been, I don't know, nine days or something. And she was testing or 12 days, maybe she was testing positive on a rapid antigen test with very minor symptoms. And she was like, can I go and pick up my kid at school? And she did go and pick up her kid at school. And my friend was sort of apoplectic about this. And I understand it. But I said, you know, I'm starting to have a different perspective on this, because when the government tells you, you have to decide all this stuff by yourself, and we're not going to give you any resources or guidelines that are worth following to do it. How can you how can you really blame people for following that lead? And what I see it as is a huge I mean you can frame it as prioritizing the economy over over health and everything else. And indeed, the United States has had a booming economy uh, throughout the pandemic. We're doing better than any other uh, high income country in the world, but we also have the highest death toll, you know, at what cost? I don't think those are two unrelated things. Maybe they are. I, I'm not, you know, I, I haven't done an analysis on it, so I can't say that without good data. But I think, you know, there's some smoke there worth investigating, we'll say whether there's a fire or not. But the other thing is, what that another way of looking at that, at putting the economy first is shifting a public health issue to individual responsibility health issue. And to me, that failure, that decision has been at the heart of all the COVID problems. And that includes Biden. I have not I even mean, slightly been impressed with Biden's COVID response. It's been, it has continued to be reactive instead of proactive. Um, you know, we were promised tests a long time ago. And then finally at the height of the Omicron surge, when nobody could find a test, oh yeah, we'll send you these tests in the mail and, and it's going to be four for a household. I mean, wh- what is that? <laughs> you know, I mean, that's like, that that's like the, you know, the building is the apartment buildings on fire. Here's a bucket of water. I mean, right. you know, um, and and so there were so many issues that have been you know reactive instead of proactive. But the big picture, and this goes—you saw it with the CDC when way back in April of 2021, when they initially rolled back their mask mandate at first. What they were basically saying is. Okay, this is no longer a public health issue. This is now an individual health issue, and you you heard it reflected in a lot of, especially Republican, but not exclusively Republicans. Certainly, plenty of Democratic governors do this as well. But Greg Abbott and Rick, you know, and uh, Desantis in Florida are the best examples of this. They say it's your individual responsibility. You know what to do. Well, that ignores the fact that you know my husband can do everything necessary to protect himself, but yeah. if other people aren't doing their part, it still endangers him. You can't take a public health issue and make it individual health. It doesn't work. That's why it's public health. <laughs> you know, right. if, it was a, if it was a, you know, if it was a non-transmissible disease, then we might be able to talk about, you know, uh, you know, w- what are some things that you can do in your lifestyle to address, you know, reduce your risk of cancer or heart disease. But this is not that, you know, it's kind of like saying, Oh, well, really bad air pollution is increasing the rate of um, pneumonia and lung disease in this community. So I guess you should all wear masks when you go outside. Let's not actually address the issue of, of actual air pollution in that area, right? You, you can't do that. Um, and it also, by, by making a public health issue an individual health issue, it passes that whole responsibility on to where the government no longer has to provide what you know, it assumes everyone can address that equally which we know, of course, is not true. Not everybody can afford to wear better quality masks to purchase them. Not everybody can afford the tests when you can even find them. Not everybody can afford to take a few days off of work when they need to. You know, they they literally cannot afford that. And the government hasn't done anything, as is their job, in my opinion, to address that for this major public health emergency. Um, and that that has been my, that's sort of my soapbox for the whole thing, because to me, that has been, from the very beginning, you know, we we had about, what, four weeks when we treated this like a public health issue. And that's it. And then it was over. You know, and it hasn't been a, it hasn't truly been viewed as a public health issue by policymakers who p- had the ability to make decisions that made a difference pretty much since April of 2020. Not that now I feel let, passionate about this at all.
0: <laughs> no, I, I I just, I, I because you you bring these big issues to ground with such clarity. And I think you're I agree with you completely. And it—it—and of course, it takes so many different forms. So let's talk about another one that you've been covering closely, and that's the vaccine. Mm-hmm. reminder, and you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to journalist Tara Haley today. So you've been writing about um, very beautifully about a troubling issue, which is vaccination and, and particularly anti-vaccine politics. I want to highlight a piece that you wrote, um, and actually it came out in April of 2021, but still highly relevant in Texas Monthly Magazine. Um, and the title is Why a Former Anti-Vax Influencer Got Her COVID-19 Shot. Um, I'm just going to read the, I'm going to read the lead here. Heather Simpson dressed up as measles for Halloween in 2019 because it was, as she told her growing following on social media, the least scary thing I could think of. The Dallas mom was then a full-fledged anti-vaccine influencer, drawing tens of thousands of likes and comments on her Facebook posts that denied the safety and necessity of childhood vaccinations. But today, you write, most of the thousands who recirculated those posts have abandoned and shunned her. So, Tell us about Heather Simpson.
1: Yeah, she, I'm trying to remember how she came on my radar. I think it was through Karen Ernst, who was the um the director of Voices for Vaccines, which is a parent advocacy group for vaccines. And she told me about Heather, and I reached out to her because she lived here in, you know, in the Dallas area, close to where I am. And her story was just really interesting. And what I what I liked about talking with Heather is that she's just an average mom, right? She's not. Uh, she's not undereducated. She's not overeducated. She's not, uh, you know, she, she wasn't part of a church where the church explicitly like preached against vaccines. You know, she, she's intelligent. She's, you know, uh, you know, she is just an average mom. Right. And, um, and she got sucked into this anti vaccine world, uh, initially by videos that she watched, um, from the Bollinger's, who are a couple that do a lot of, um, uh, uh, what do you call it, a lot of uh, anti-vaccine advocacy in Tennessee, I think it is. They're, they're actually on the, if anyone has ever seen the disinformation dozen um, out there, they are on that list of the disinformation dozen. And she got wrapped up in it. And one of the things that's important to realize when you become part of those groups is that it has a sort of religiosity to it, like a cult-like following. I mean, you your friendships are built on these common values and beliefs, and then when you, you know, in her case, when she began to see, wait, some of these things don't add up and this doesn't quite seem right to me. And she started to, you know, make some statements about, well, maybe some vaccines aren't that bad. You know, this was heresy. Literally, I mean, and I mean that quite literally, it was heresy. And people began to abandon her and get frustrated. And to her, the fact that quote-unquote pro-vaccine advocates were willing to continue talking with her during this time while her anti-vaccine friends were abandoning her was more evidence to her that there was something up basically and and that's how a lot of this happens i think what is especially um you know uh illustrative of her experience is that it was not a it wasn't like flipping a light switch. I hear a lot of people come to me and say, you know, my, my uncle, my cousin, my brother, my next door neighbor, my best friend, my childhood friend, you know, won't, doesn't want to get the vaccine. What do I do? And they want to have this one conversation. And then after that conversation, their friend goes, you know, goes to Walmart and gets a shot. And that's not how it works. Um, it takes, it can take weeks. It can take months. It's a process. Um, it's, it's sort of a deprogramming in a way, because there's all different kinds of contributors to that, anti-vaccine belief system and it's not the same for every individual. Um, Some of it's different types of cognitive biases that influence the way that they interpret information. For some people it has to do with who's around them and what their friends or family's beliefs are. For some of them it's the personal interactions they've seen with COVID. You know have they actually been close to anyone who's died from COVID or have they heard a story about a side effect? I mean there's all different reasons for it. And you can't lump them all together. And you also can't call all of them anti-vaxxers. That's a term I hate. I probably have given you this spiel before. Uh, I keep meaning to write a piece about this, and I I probably will sometime this week or next. But um, I really have a problem with the term anti-vaxxer. It's a – of course, it's a derogative term. And that's not to say we shouldn't marginalize anti-vaccine activists, which we absolutely should. But the problem is it's a vague term. It means different things to different people. And it doesn't, it's it's very imprecise. And what happens is it becomes a divisive term that you use to label someone and then you don't engage with them. And there's a difference between a quote unquote anti-vaxxer, which I call an anti-vaccine activist, a person who's Mm -hmm. actively out there versus a vaccine refuser, someone who said, I'm not going to get the vaccine, but who's not like actively advocating for others not to versus a vaccine reluctant or vaccine hesitant person who hasn't gotten it. But they haven't stopped listening to people, even though they haven't gotten it, you know, um, or a recent convert kind of vaccine-hesitant person or a vaccine-hesitant person who went and got the vaccine but still isn't so sure about it, right? There's nice. a lot of people who went and got the vaccine and they were like, fine, I'll give in, I'll get it. But they're not getting the booster because they're like, no, I've done it. I don't want to go through that again. you know. And, you know, it, we, we haven't approached many of the discussions on this very effectively, I think. Um, there's been some great outreach, but there's still other areas that have been lacking, The government did a really good job of identifying certain types of groups that were going to have some hesitancy in addressing them, especially, for example, black Americans and Latino Americans. But they completely neglected the entire demographic of conservative, white and rural Americans. Mm. Um, And that's a huge demographic. Uh, I mean, that's the demographic responsible for how Trump got into the office. That's how big it is. And there was no... No investment whatsoever in that group. And I will say it will be harder to reach people in that group than it, than it might be in other groups. I'm not going to say it's easy, but there was just no attempt whatsoever. Um, well, the, I think you at least.
0: This taxonomy that you're developing, the spectrum is super useful um, to go from, you know, an ant- and I agree with you on the sort of flat use of anti vaxxer as a pejorative and um, as an epithet almost. Um, when what you really want to talk about is an anti-vaccine activist or a disinformation activist who finds the vaccine as a place to use disinformation as a grift. Exactly. In in other words, somebody who once said, you wrote about this in the New York Times also last year in which you broke down the sort of history of the anti-vaccine movement basically as an industry. Exactly. As as an ideology, as an industry, which is. It's both. It's both and it's moving around. Yeah. And so the vaccine, and so then we conflate, you know, we remove what could be a very important space between people who are just seeking information or um, their hesitancy could come from any number of things, but they're not out there in Washington in the freezing cold protesting against vaccines. We need that space. I I don't want to lose Heather Simpson just to come back to her for a second because she, this is what I love about this piece. She's every one of those. She's an anti vaccine. She's an influencer, but right. another term goes all the way through those different stages. And then and she would have being, qualified
1: as the quote unquote anti-vaxxer in that anti-vaccine activist. Okay. Exactly.
0: But um, and then you she chart her whole, her yeah. whole trajectory. She went all the story. way from
1: extreme to the other. She went from anti-vaxxer right. all the way to pro-vaccine activist.
0: Why don't we have more journalism like that?
1: Uh, we call that solutions journalism. It exists. Um, it's hard to do when you're. You're trying to find solutions. You're trying to point out problems and you can only do so much at one time. Um, and it's, you know, you get into these re- ruts where it's like, is something too Pollyanna? You know, is she mm. – I've, I've had people say, well, yeah, but that's just one person, right? And um, this is incredibly cheesy, but I, I often invoke <laughs> – I've invoked this for years going back to like elementary and junior high – I'm sure many of your listeners will recognize the starfish story. It's the idea of the man who's walking along the beach throwing, you know, after a storm and there's all these starfish on the beach and he picks one up and throws it back in the ocean and picks one up and throws back in the ocean. And another man's jogging by him and stops and says, why are you, there's, there's thousands of starfish. You're never going to get to all of them. What difference does it make? And he picks one up and tosses it in the ocean. Well, that one, it made a difference. You know, it's, it's cheesy, uh, you know, it's, it's cheesy, it's corny, but it's also true, Right. You know, when I was a teacher, I could not reach everybody when I taught. you know, I I could not, I was not going to save every kid, but you know, I did save some kids and some of them I saved. I didn't even know I saved and I never will know. So I think, you know, we, you can't do something with the expectation of a hundred percent. Is there anything that we do in our lives where we expect a hundred percent return? No. Um, And, and, you know, that's just not how life works. So if that's your goal. You're going to be disappointed, you know. <laughs> so yeah. I think that's you know that's part of the challenge there.
0: Let's talk about the grifters for a second. In in this, um, they're really having their moment, aren't they? I mean, you yes, know, that they Max They
1: have grown in in uh, influence. I mean, I one thing that's important when we look at you know RFK Jr. for example, who I it, it breaks my heart every time I see RFK Robert F. Kennedy because his father. Uh, are, are you still there?
0: I'm still so, here. I've just got a. a, a like you, I'm sort of broadcasting from home today. I might have a visitor coming in the room, so I might go off camera for a minute.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Sorry. Um, you know, so Robert F. Kennedy jr. You know, his father delivered what I consider one of the greatest speeches in American history on the day that MLK died. And, um, his father was largely responsible for a lot of the poverty programs that we have in place because, uh, RFK went and visited homes in the deep South where kids were starving. And, um, he, he, you know, was responsible for some of the legislation that went on to address educational disparities and health disparities and, and starvation and poverty. And then we have his son just, I mean, doing the most anti-health thing you can possibly do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I know it's caused rifts. There was a, a story in the Boston Globe recently about the rifts it's causing within the Kennedy family, of course. Um, so, you know, seeing that and then seeing the other grifters. One thing that's important is those individuals have been at this for years. RFK jumped on the anti-vaccine bandwagon in around, oh gosh, 2000 or 2001. Somewhere. I don't know the exact date, but around there, right? Um, and a lot of the other folks that are in the spotlight now with this, they, they've they been in this fight for two decades. And they've perfected their rhetoric. You know, when, when RFK Jr. went to that big rally and said, mm-hmm. compared you know, giving vaccines to the Holocaust and to Anne Frank, and then he apologized, right? You know, he's done that two other times before. He's made that Holocaust analogy multiple times publicly. He's even apologized for it once in 2015. I don't take any kind of apology to heart when you've done it multiple times on the public stage. You know, the Holocaust analogy to vaccination is not new. It predated t- 2015. It came up a lot, but it predates 2015 as well. Um so I think a lot of people don't realize this movement has been there all along. And perhaps the best chronicler of this is David Gorski. He's a, a surgeon. He's a breast cancer surgeon who has written about misinformation for years uh, on his blog. And he runs the, uh, the blog site Science Based Medicine. Um, he has probably tracked the anti-vaccine movement in, in great detail. His, his posts are long. Um, the most closely over the past 20 years. So if anyone really wants to dive into the rabbit hole, uh, I would check out science-based medicine. Um, And and he will tell you, I mean, you can, you can find stories of it, you know, just go on his site and and do a search for Holocaust and it'll take you back to like, I don't know, 2012 or something. So I think it's important that people realize this is not a new movement, but it is, it has gained extensive influence um, over, throughout the pandemic. And a lot of that influence has come with its marriage with the, sort of conservative ideology and the Republican Party. And that's not new either, but its it's size and coordination is somewhat new. It's been going on for, it's been moving in that direction for a good five to eight years, maybe a little longer, but it really started to coalesce around 2015. And and that was sort of the Rubicon crossing in 2015. Um, And I would say that even Trump, for example, I wouldn't say that Trump caused it at all. He was a product of it. People want to say, oh, it was Trump's fault. Well, yeah, he played a role in it, but he wasn't he he was a product of that marriage that, you know, he he didn't cause it. It was there long before Trump.
0: Let's stay with this for a second, because, you know, um, when Trump jumped into the birther conspiracy around Obama and his birth certificate, that to me was this like launch of his campaign. Absolutely. Um, And and that made. I can't believe I'm going to say this. That made a lot of sort of strategic electoral sense because it's just straight oh, it up racism. It absolutely it's did. like here's the dog whistle. This clear. is racism. It's
1: brilliant.
0: Right. Oh, it's less clear to me the long term strategic kind of electoral strategy of bringing anti vaccination activism into the core of the Republican Party. I mean, first of all, you're freedom. killing your you're killing your voters. But secondly, I mean, it just leads to madness. Yeah.
1: No, it's freedom. It all comes down to that word, freedom or liberty, pick one. That's the unifying factor. Because what happened was in 2015, when it started to really coalesce, was a result, we had had a measles outbreak at the end of 2014. That was the one that started at Disneyland and went into 2015. And having a a measles outbreak at Disneyland was sort of this big wake up call because it's like the happiest place on earth and it's got measles, right? It was was the perfect sort of, you know, uh, horror, if you will for parents and a bunch of California parents got together and pushed to have a bill that would require vaccines for all California school kids, regardless if it was public school, um, private school, or even homeschool groups, for example, um, and to remove the personal belief exemption and personal belief exemptions had been growing in recent years. Um, And when they did that, what happened was that the anti, and I'm not saying they should or shouldn't have, I'm just saying that was, you know, that was one of the precipitating events. Then the anti vaccine activists tried to fight back against that with science and say it's not safe for my kids. But they very quickly found that that didn't get any traction. It, the, you know, the, the lawmakers were not moved by that because the science was not on their side. So then they switched tactics and instead of saying these vaccines aren't safe, they said, I have the right to decide what goes into my child's body. You should not take away my liberty, my freedom to decide how to raise my own kids. And that had traction. And that fit perfectly with what had all, you know, the Tea Party had already, you know, revitalized this liberty idea. And of course, you know, the, a core part of conservative values has always been freedom, right? If you go back to like seatbelt laws and helmet laws and, uh, you know, free market, I mean, the, the idea of liberty being a primary central goal uh, and value within the Republican Party. That's not new D- deregulation in the eighties, right? The, the excessive. So, so that's been there for a while. And then the tea party brought it really front and center. And as the tea party was dying out, this was coming along and it fit perfectly. The ideology was a perfect match. It was not, and that's what we have now. We see the same thing with the anti masks. We see the same thing with the, uh, you know, not requiring social distancing and not, you know, vaccination mandates. It's all of it is unified under that one word, which is, you know, my, my freedom. And freedom, of course, is, you know, if not one of the core values, it, you know, the core value or, or one of the top two or three in the United States. Right. I mean, that's been, you know, opportunity, freedom. That's that's kind of, you know, Independence Day. That has been our our blood. That is like the, the core of what it is to be American. And yet that, quote unquote, freedom, as I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes said something to the effect of, you know, your freedom ends where my fist begins or something like that. I can't remember what it was. But that's true with vaccines, right? Your your freedom to not wear a mask ends when you infect me. But that's right. not how it's being perceived. So so I consider it anti-freedom to be anti-vaccine because what you're doing is not allowing my own husband to walk in Walmart safely.
0: So do you anticipate um where is this gonna go for the for the as we move into the twenty twenty four election season, which is not that far away? I mean, Trump is in a weird space with this because he yeah. was he was championing the vaccine. Very early on, um, right. I, I will say
1: the one good thing that Trump did—he threw five, what was it five million, five billion, five million, not million—that wouldn't go anywhere. Like five billion dollars, and said, "Get a vaccine as fast as you can." That I mean, right. I, I give him kudos for that. Right, And money and is has, no object.
0: And he has talked in his in his recent uh, whatever you want to call them events, I guess. Um, <laughs> And he talks about and he's, you know, he has a way of saying he's. I got my he knows people are going to boo. He says, I've gotten my vaccine. I got my right. my booster. People no, boo. I he to says, that. I'm not going to make you do it. Um, you know, you choose for yourself. Right. It's up to you. But he hasn't. And, and he's tried to to turn sort of modeling what what could be coming in the future. He sort of flipped that around on Ron DeSantis and said, why won't DeSantis tell us? Where it's a kind of again, it's kind of a birther thing. Like he's hiding the documents. He won't tell you what whether a lot of or not I think
1: he, DeSantis is gonna be the big challenger to Trump. And I yeah. Okay. I have no prognostication like skills and I'm not gonna make any predictions because they'll blow up in my face. Um, I do think the twenty twenty four election I, I'm worried about it. I don't know what's gonna happen. I don't I don't think that harris has the charisma and front leadership role that she needs to have to be a contender i don't think biden will you know biden's support has waned and his biden's biden's main draw was always not trump right it was never biden that people were voting for they were voting for not trump um i voted for not trump not for biden right and, and honestly even then i still expected more of biden than i'm seeing i am not impressed with his pandemic response in the slightest and i haven't been for many months um i'm not impressed with his appointments at some of our major federal agencies dealing with health for example i'm I'm just gonna leave it right there (laughs) um so you know i don't think we have a charismatic leader on the democratic side that can really challenge and i all i see on the right is ted cruz desantis and trump and i mean that's like three of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I don't know which one, you know, who, who among those is the worst. I don't know, but none of them is going to be good for the country. So I don't know what's going to happen in 2024 um, and what it's going to mean. And I, I do worry about it. I, and same with the Senate, you know, the Senate's hanging on by a thread right now. We've got a 49, 49 split in the Senate only because Mitt Romney has COVID and another person's uh, Democrat just had a stroke. I mean, the fact that, you know, a single illness can shift what we can vote for in the Senate uh, especially with the way the filibuster, you know, with with, um, right. I mean, you know, all of this is is interrelated. And the other the other wild card here is all while this is going on, we don't know when the next variant will arrive. And notice, I didn't say if I said when. We don't know when it'll arrive or what it will look like or how it will impact us and how that will interact with the election cycle. We also don't know when the next climate disaster arrives. Again, I say when. Right. Not if there's going to be and and they're going to start picking up and how that interacts with the election cycle, because people have short memories and they vote often on what they can remember from the last six months as opposed to the last four years. Um, You know, Trump knew that he he took credit for things that Obama did and blamed things on, on Obama that he himself did. And people believed it because they have short memories.
0: Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to science and health journalist, Tara Haley. Um, can you spare five more minutes, Tara? I know no, you've no, got responsibility. Okay. Um, another thing I wanted to get to, which you've been, um, thinking about and writing about is, um, it's not unrelated to what we we're talking about before, but in some ways I find it even more distressing is this sort of COVID minimization. Yes. Um, the last COVID calls I had just last hour, we were talking about the sort of rush to endemicity, like it's endemic. Now, which of course is a misuse of the term as it is, and also exactly. an aspiration yes. that does, doesn't bear out. Yeah, you know, Francis
1: Ballou um, had, a quote on, or had a tweet on that that was not very good.
0: <laughs> you know, mild. We're getting to the to the mild, and and then there's this, this sort of gaslighting that goes on too. That um, and this started a while ago. Oh yeah, it was this often pinned on, on liberals. Break. Yeah. You know, that oh, if you're over concerned about your kids in school, that maybe it's more about you than it is about the the risk. Yes. Emily Oster has been one of the practitioners of this. You yes. Know, kind of what i guess sort of lay the ground groundwork here to understand this like why what's the big picture here why are they trying to minimize
1: this going on okay in some cases i think the the individuals who are doing the minimizing are just trying to make a name for themselves okay and i i'm gonna flat out call out two people on that uh, three actually marty macari Vinay prasad and lucy mcbride are three examples of people who they are very media-hungry. They just want to have their name out there, and they, they, so they'll do whatever it takes to get their name out there. There's also, at the same time, a lot of ignorance, and all three of them fall into that as well, especially, you know, Vinay Prasad is, has built part of his uh, you know public-facing career on criticizing trials and clinical research and, and calling for, you know, uh, randomized control trials, RCTs for masks. Vinay Prasad has never run a clinical study in his life, ever. He has not once. He has not even participated in one. And Lucy McBride has made all kinds of statements about kids' mental health, and we got to get move on, and we got to help the kids, and we got to do this. Lucy McBride is an internist for adults. She has zero pediatric experience. She has zero mental health experience. She is not a pediatric mental health practitioner. She is not a mental health practitioner at all. She is not a pediatrician. She is not an infectious disease expert. She is not an epidemiologist. She has zero you know, you know, ability to speak here from any kind of actual knowledge base, um, but she's a ruthlessly good promoter of herself. Then you have the group of people who I, I think they really believe what they're saying. And, um, you know, Monica Gandhi is an interesting case, because I think she really believes what she's saying. I don't think she's out for the grift. I think she's trying to help, but she just speaks well beyond what her expertise is. And, and some of it, I, I wonder why she's saying it. I don't know if she just feels like she has something and she has to say it. I, I don't know. I hate speculating on what's going on in others' heads. But her comments and statements throughout the last year and a half have not been helpful in any way whatsoever. Emily Oster, I just think that she's very privileged and she has very little to no empathy for people that are not in her privileged bubble. I, I used to think that she was privileged and privileged blind. But after seeing more and more of her tweets and talking to people who've had conversations with her or interacted with her, I have come to believe that she just lacks empathy for people outside her privileged bubble. Um, And, you know, it it, it doesn't matter if it affects other people. She just wants to be able to send her kids to school full stop. Um, You know, there's people like Francis Ballou is a is a uh, tweeter. He's an epidemiologist in germany i think you know i think he is trying to be helpful i think he believes what he says but he's just off base and he doesn't do a great job when he you know backtracks um i, I don't think he's as problematic as some of the other ones are i mean he was the one who recently had that quote about you know we should just let it rip for kids basically yep. and that's how we get it to be endemic with, without considering that maybe you could vaccinate kids imagine that right um so i you know i i <sighs> The the thing that is so challenging about these individuals, and I haven't named all of them, and I'm not necessarily saying that I've named all the worst ones. I don't want to. I mean, I've already been attacked ruthlessly on Twitter for this. Um, but I think what's what's disturbing is that all of these individuals come from story, you know, fr- from uh, cred- you know, they have the credentials, they have an MD or and or a PhD. And they work at UCSF or Stanford or, you know, these big institutions that are highly respected and thought to be institutions that only take the best of the best. And these people do not represent the best of the best. Um, now McBride, she's not even at one of these institutions. She actually closed up her practice and became, you know, faith, you know, she's predomin- predominantly doing all of her media uh, coverage stuff. I mean, I see her as nothing more than a, a promoter of that kind of, you know, of herself in terms of the media. But, um, but in ter- and I say that as I mean, she reached out to me, one of the reasons I know how McBride works is she reached out to me, oh gosh, it was probably over a year ago now. And I did interview her and I mm. thought it was a good faith outreach. And it's only been after that, that I've realized, wow, she played me as much as she played anyone else. She was, she just, she'll reach out to anybody. Um, she's very hungry in terms of media coverage. So people see these and then they use these statements from people who have an MD who aren't crazy cranks, right? They're not, it's not Peter McCullough or Robert Malone who are to you the big, you know, anti-vax leaders that, that have an MD and PhD. These are individuals who still practice and see patients, although they don't see COVID patients, um, and who, you know, are, they should be. The good guys. <laughs> you know, and, and and they're they're saying things in some cases it's like they're just being contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. Uh Vinay Prasad built his career on that. And I think there's a role for gadflies and people who question sure. things. You know, we need that. But there's a point at which the I'm just trying to present a different point of view becomes dangerous. And we've long crossed that with a lot of these minimizers. And the biggest aspect of the minimization that I've seen is downplaying the value of the ch- pediatric vaccines playing up the risks of the pediatric vaccines specifically the myocarditis risk which is a real risk um and then uh minimizing the impact of covid on kids mm. and that's helped by the fact that that reporting on covid in kids is among our worst reporting it's it's hard to do good surveillance on that so the combination of all those things you know, that's where the minimization, they're not minimizing the deaths of adults. I haven't seen that from these individuals. It's pretty much focused on children. Um, and I don't think that they're like evil people, um, but they're just way off base and it's harmful. Um, you know, there's a uh, Tracy Hogue is another one who she and um, Lucy McBride and some others got together on this recent thing called Urgency of Normal, this toolkit they put together to try mm-hmm. and say, you know, the urgency to get back to normal. Yeah, well, you know to ask you what? About that. Okay, it's not normal. Look out, you know, look at the, go to the New York Times and type in Omicron cases. We currently have more cases at this moment on the downslide of Omicron than we ever had with Delta at any given time. It's not normal right now. And if you try and pretend like it is, that causes more harm. You know, we need to be talking honestly. It doesn't mean you all hole up in your house and don't go anywhere, but you need to be talking honestly about what we can do. And they have this bizarre obsession with masks in schools. They, they seem to think that there's no evidence that masks work in schools and that it's some horrible, harmful thing for kids. Okay. Cole, come here. I'm going to show you my kid over here. Okay. This is my seven year old. Okay. Anywhere, where, anytime we walk out the door, he puts a mask on. I have to remind him to take the mask off an hour later. You like Cole, don't you? <laughs> you know, it's. There are some kids who have mask issues. You know, there's some kids with autism, for example. There's autistic kids who, uh, who need to, you know, they have sensory issues. Um, there's kids who are hard of hearing, right? Who may need to be able to lip read the teacher. I mean, I'm not saying there's never an issue with masks, but all these ideas about it being mentally damaging and and, and harming developmental skills and social skills, it's for one, it's there's no evidence to support all that. Two, yeah. there's good evidence showing it does reduce transmission. And three. I rarely bring this up, but I'm going to bring it up because I'm just feeling punchy. I think it's racist. <laughs> and that's probably one you haven't heard in a while. But the reason I say it's racist, you're in Korea, right? Yep. Okay. So how, how many times before 2020, how often did you see kids wearing masks?
0: Well, I wasn't here then, so I couldn't oh, speak okay, to it. But, to but yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay,
1: I, I was in China back in, oh, gosh, when was that? 2000. It was just before the 2012 Olympics. Yeah, and I bought my first face mask when I was there.
0: Yeah, and, no, it, it, it's you know, been there a,
1: were kids of all ages wearing masks all over the place. I, I forget the word now for it in Chinese. I learned it; it was one of the only Chinese words I was able right. to because it well, was. Well, we so get
0: long. we get seasonal yellow yeah. dust here, and then there's pollution, and then there's also the the yeah. long tail of mers. But here. I
1: mean, you know, yeah. uh, kids in China and Japan have been wearing masks for years, oh, yeah. and to claim that wearing masks in pediatrics, Cole, can you please turn that off? I'm on a video that's recording. To claim that, sorry. <laughs> um, to claim that wearing a mask is all kinds of damaging to these young children because they shouldn't be wearing masks. To me, there's sort of inherent racism, not necessarily recognized or intentional, because you're essentially saying that all those kids in China and Japan and you know, all these different places, Singapore, whatever, who have been wearing masks all these years for different reasons when SARS comes through, whatever. It's like you're presuming that all those kids are messed up in some way. I mean, mm-hmm. what, what else? What other conclusion can I draw from that? Right. If if there was if there were these substantial concerns about masks, we would have seen it years ago. Oh, you know, SARS was in 2003. We've had that's 20 really years evidence on dangers of, of masks and kids and we don't have it. <laughs> so um, I just,
0: you know, I just, you know I, yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a, t- I want to stick with this just one second because I think it really yeah. um, connects back to our earlier discussion on the, how we talk about anti-vaccine ideology. So you named a lot of people, various levels of uh, medical or public health expertise who are in the public sphere. And I think, um, part of me thinks, um, wow, if we were pre-social media, these people could be in their rooms, they could be in their journals. As you said, they could be gadflies, they could be cranks. They're always the person in the back of the conference room who says, yes, but for a moment, let me take a a contrarian position and let's see how we feel about that. It can be generative, right? But that's a room full of people who are in the, they know, they know the language, they know the research, some of it at least. Um and if they move beyond the norms of that expert community, they know it. There's there, people like, okay, I'm, I've heard enough from you now. Let's hear that. And I like that. I mean, part of me, I, I'm part of the expert class. But, with yeah, a, as a historian, that I like. I, I like, like that. that.
1: But when you're writing an op-ed for USA Today saying masks are dangerous for kids. That is, you, you've gone well beyond that community. You know, what you're talking about is writing op-eds for, you know, BMJ or JAMA or any absolutely. jam, you know, for the, for the journal community. When you start going on Fox or CNN or CBS and you start doing your own podcast and you're tweeting and you're saying these things, you've gone well past that. You've now sought out a public audience and that public audience does not include people who have the level of scientific foundation and expertise to be able to assess what you're saying. They're just trusting you, you because you've got letters after your name.
0: So, so, okay. So and then we're genies out of the bottle. We're in the social media realm now, more speech, more and more and more. But are you of the mindset that the only way that you can then um, defeat this kind of dangerous speech or COVID minimization speech is more speech? I mean, that's um, what I'm hearing, but yeah, I, I'm, I, I'm really torn around this because I feel I like there should really, be guardrails.
1: Yeah, no, this but is not censorship. No, this is something I have struggled with. Okay. I'm a journalist, right? Right. Before that, I was a teacher. OK, my entire everything that I do in terms of my professional life and even my personal life is sort of centered on freedom of speech that excuse right. me, I am in. <laughs> Kids,
0: we'll wrap up soon. I know they want your time. <laughs> um,
1: you know, freedom of speech is is core to everything I do. You can't get a more sacred value to me. Um, And yet. I don't know how we address what we're seeing right now without putting restrictions on speech that I think are too dangerous to put on it. You know, I, I don't want the government restricting this kind of speech because then the government's in the place of arbiting. You know, becoming the arbiter of of um, what is you know acceptable levels of scientific evidence versus you know discourse. And goodness, our courts are already atrocious at assessing. Um, scientific evidence in cases. Like, I mean, there's books written about how awful forensic, um, you know, evidence when it comes to the science are, right? There's all kinds of junk science in the courtroom. So I certainly don't want elected officials having anything to do with that or appointments, you know, appointees that have been appointed by, you know, I don't want that. And I think that's dangerous. I think that, you know, if I go so far as to say that's anti-American, it's unconstitutional and it is, It is dangerous in the sense that it starts to open those little tiny cracks on the way to authoritarianism. Um, On the flip side, there's a lot of dangerous speech and that speech is not – the speech itself is what's dangerous and that's what I think we're not recognizing. What do you do when it's not the impact? It's the, the speech itself is dangerous. The speech itself is harmful. I don't know what we do about that. I, I really don't. And I'd love to hear from some, you know, deep thinking, thoughtful historians and political scientists and philosophers and journalists who have a lot more experience and reading on this than I do. Comparative government scholars. I, I don't think this is an answer that we can come up with by just spitballing it. I mean, you need to have people who come from a wide variety of disciplines, you know, epistemologists who can think about this and, you know, tech tech people, right, because so much of this is based on social media, you know, Um, I don't have a problem with Facebook and Twitter regulating speech. Um, I might be frustrated with how they choose to do it sometimes, but they absolutely have the right to, and I don't think those are public utilities that ought to be, you know, the, the government should keep their hands out of those. So if, you know, if Twitter, I see what's happening right now with Spotify, right? And you know Spotify, it's the market talking, right? Neil Young said, pull my music. Then Joni Mitchell said, me too. And some other people are saying, hey, I might do that too. And then Rogan does a video. That's the free market working. And Spotify has to decide what they're willing to do. Uh, Substack has a similar issue. There's a whole lot Mm -hmm. of of white supremacists using Substack to spread their hate. And I won't use Substack as a result. My non-use of Substack probably is not relevant to Substack. I wasn't going to, you know, I'm not denying them much, but you know, I do think there's a place for the free market in in that kind of thing, but I don't think that's enough either. And I I don't know the solution. I know I've just rambled a lot, but I don't think it's and I don't think there are simple answers here, and it keeps me up at night. I wonder what we do because uh, government regulation is not the answer, but I don't know what the answer is.
0: I mean, in some states where they're beginning to regulate, like Virginia, for example. Um you know what they call critical race theory, or what can be taught in that's the classroom. That's a good example. I
1: mean, yeah, anything—the the moment an you example. open the door to any form of censorship, <laughs> my son's talking about the South Lake because that's where a lot of the Texas book banning is going on. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, the, exactly the Tennessee board. You know, looking at Mouse, for example. I mean, it's anything that you—if you—if you're going to open the door to that level of censorship, it's going to be weaponized by people on both sides. And inappropriately on both sides. And then the people in the middle who were really trying to do good with it, that's going to go out the window. It's going to get overshadowed by that. So I so I definitely don't think government regulation is the answer. I just don't know what it is. And I, I hesitate to say the answer to harmful speech is more speech because you're presuming a certain base level of knowledge and epistemological awareness on the role of people who don't have the critical thinking skills to assess all those things. That sentence right there that I said, half of an audience won't understand what I just said there. And that's not because they're dumb or they're stupid. They just haven't received the education to be able to take what I just said and m- make meaning out of it. Um, and, and that doesn't reflect on the value that they have to contribute to society. But it does mean that it's harder for them to make assessments about whether they should be listening to me or listening to that guy or listening to that guy, you know? And I
0: just...
1: Sorry, throw my hands up No.
0: <laughs> and, and as an educator, I guess I have to... Um, Come back to this this conviction I have now more than ever that um, media education and these kinds of uh, what do we call it epistemology education science education like that's where we have to be investing a a lot lot of time for middle school students to be able to understand. And as you said, and and to read the the articles or the op-eds or the tweets by COVID minimizers and say, well, what are the credentials of this person to speak on this particular issue without saying, I hate that person and I want... The, it right. It doesn't need to go to those extremes. Right. It can remain in a space where people are just skeptical and then try to find the data that they think actually will keep them and their families safe. That's a skill.
1: It is. It is. And it can be taught. You know, we can... I, I would love to see every sixth grade, you know, class taking a taking a year long course in something that's sort of like you know scientific discourse, epistemology, media literacy, and debate. I, you know, something. It, that,
0: it sounds you know, critical, like a course, critical you should thinking,
1: right? I, I don't know what you'd call <laughs> it, but something that incorporates critical thinking, epistemology. You know, talking about social biases cognitive biases and how they influence the way we think, and you know, I, I don't know. What you would call it, but you could definitely fill a year's curriculum with trying to raise awareness about that and raise people who are, you know, teach kids to be more critical thinkers. Our public education system was not set up to be that way initially. Um, It was set up to create good factory workers. So it requires a revamp of a public system that has not really ever properly been revamped for that.
0: So. We're out of time in this discussion. I want to remind everyone you've been listening to Covid Calls and you can usually catch Covid Calls at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Today's been a special double header and I want to thank my guest Tara Haley for coming back, talking on these talking about your writing, talking about your concerns, these many issues. I always like talking to you and also because at certain points you say I don't know what the answer is to this, but <laughs> yeah. let's keep asking and let's keep digging and I think that's why you're right. a great journalist and that's why I value our discussions. And I hope we get a chance to get you back. And it's cool to see your, your family there. And I hope everyone stays healthy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Tara.
1: Yep. Thank you very much.
0: Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls tomorrow 6 PM Eastern time. I have Jason Abeluk to talk about the data on masks. So please do join me for that.